Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club, and it's the yearly event to start off a new terrible looking year. We're talking about our five favorite movies, the best movies, Will. Da, 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 da. So in many previous years, we used to do a top 10 list and we used to do a countdown, you know, 10, 9, 8, all that. And last year we hit upon, I think, a much better new formula where we say five movies from the year that we liked. They don't even have to be the five best, just five movies that we really liked that stuck with us, as well as our five favorite or five of our favorite discoveries from last year, movies that we saw for the first time. But I'm still going to put the best movies in the title of this episode because people click on that. So if we fooled you, just keep listening. You already hit play. Why not just learn about what our five favorite films are? That's right. So do you want to start it right off the bat, Will? How about we like move between both of them? Let's each start with a movie that came out this year because people want to know if we have the correct taste. And then after we both say one, then we can move on to discoveries, then new movie, then discoveries. We will get lost, I'm sure. (laughs) But it's to shake things up a little bit. I think that's a great idea. And before we start, can I ask, what was your impression of the last year in film? Do you have any overwhelming takeaways? Do you think it was a good year, a bad year? Well, you'll have to wait for my five to 10,000 word essay that I write every year about the state of the film industry. But... (laughs) No, uh, I don't know. I didn't really think too hard about it, but I'm sure you have. So what do you think? Will? Uh, no, I was hoping that you would thought about it. Um, <laughs> no, I guess. I mean, there was a lot of good movies that came out this year, like making a top 10 list. It wasn't like last year where I struggled to just even get five that I really enjoyed. There were a lot of good movies. As usual, uh, The many of the best movies were ones that, you know, weren't the most popular movies. Sorry, that's such a banal thing to say, but it happens to be true and it's evergreen true. I guess if there's one thing, uh, one overwhelming takeaway that I have from the year, one thing that I find very interesting about the year is the continued, it seems, disintegration of the theatrical experience. I wonder what could be causing that. I mean, obviously a huge number of factors, the deadly pandemic, not least among them. But I mean, Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man, $600 million domestically. People could not get to it soon enough. You know, super spreading all over the place to see that Spidey or Spidey. Spoiler alert. And it's kind of the only the only like gigantic unqualified uh, i mean aside from venom one of the two gigantic unqualified theatrical hits of last year and it's amazing it did so well that it goes to show that people are willing to go to the go to see a movie in theaters but it seems they're only willing to go see spider-man and and nothing else i think that it was on the nice edge of people feeling it was safe right before everything collapsed because it kind of happened right when spider-man was coming out where you get the sense of people being like, oh, it must be safe to go out, right? Now they're releasing these big movies, all these big theatrical blockbusters by, uh, you know, private entities are saying stuff like, only in theaters, come and see it. And people rushed out because they wanted that nostalgia of perhaps some other Spider-Man showing up as well as the new one, which they also But enjoyed. isn't it interesting that like every drama flopped and flopped hard this year? Like, you know, uh, Cry Macho or King Richard or the Ridley scott movie with matt damon yet the ridley scott movie house of gucci did pretty well at the box yeah, office it did okay but there were, there were there were a huge number of flops and like it really looks like people are people just are, have have grown accustomed to watching movies like that on netflix or whatever and they really don't want to go out anymore i hope i hope that's not true but it kind of seems like i it. don't think it's true i think it just never really felt safe <laughs> like especially in canada but, but spider-man spider-man is something they feel safe about because it's something that they recognize if it's something new ah. they're like oh i don't know i don't want to take that chance they're like spider-man won't hurt me even though that he will he will infect you and kill you. He does not care as long as you pay the entrance fee. Well, listen, I went to see a bunch of movies and I didn't get COVID and I look forward to doing it again soon. I would say that the thing that a lot of people came to realize this year is, wow, this would have been released in theaters when they sat and watched a movie at home. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so anyway, getting on to the movies that we liked this year. As I said, this isn't ranked these aren't necessarily the best movies of the year, but when I think of a movie that really satisfied me, really exceeded my expectations, and also felt like a movie of the moment, the first one that comes to mind for me is Paul Schrader's The Card Count. I mean, I have that on my list as well. What a great movie oh, that man. is. Oh man, so he is really one of the only guys from that new Hollywood generation who's 
not only still prolific, not only still at the peak of his powers, but he's also making movies that speak directly to the current moment. And I love how in his last two films, this one in First Reformed, he really found a way to synthesize contemporary concerns, whether it was the environmental crisis in the last movie or, you know, the the war criminals that we have leading our countries in this movie and, you know, the way that those people get off scot-free and all, all the scapegoats, all the scapegoats from lower classes end up taking the rap for them. You know, he synthesizes those contemporary concerns with the stylistic influences of his mid-20th century favorites, you know, your Bergmans, your Brassens, your Dryers. And I also think that in this movie, the poker player and the poker face are a kind of ingenious metaphor. Oscar Isaac in the film uses this poker face as sort of a way to... I guess, escape guilt or just sort of like deaden himself for all, from all the things that he's done. Uh, it's a very powerful image. Getting an email here or a text from Martin Scorsese and he's like, what about me? Am I not still at the height of my power, Will? Martin Scorsese is doing some of the best work of his career. I got nothing against him. Uh, he did produce Paul Schrader's The Card Counter. I think that Paul Schrader is in such a perfect place because he would admit it himself, he was always trying to chase something, to try to do different things with his cinema, which, you know, is a very brave decision in an attempt to reach wider audiences and also challenge himself. But in his old age, with death just around the corner, I'm sure, he has decided, look, I'm just going to do what I love. Like, you can make jokes about how First Reform is very familiar to the card counter, Yes, they are, but they are also distinct enough to stand alone and be just as powerful, even if you've seen both of them. And I think that there would be no other reason for him to change this mode of movie making because he had found the perfect theme of expression. And, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years of his career, he's been interesting to follow because he's not like Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg, where he can still kind of write his own ticket, can still get any budget that he wants, do any material that he wants. He's working in a lower budget, independent ecosystem. He's in a system where they could take the movie away from him, even though it stars Nicolas Cage, and completely edit it and release it without his consent. And so over the last decade or so, you've constantly been seeing him try to adapt to the marketplace. His, his recent career has been an exercise in how can I be the filmmaker I want to be in this very inhospitable system. And as a result, there have been movies like The Canyons, there have been movies like Dog Eat Dog, you know, movies of wildly varying success. And then- Hello, fellow teen style movies. <laughs> and then in these last two movies, he's really found this way where it's like, like okay, you can, you can sell the movie for a certain amount and you can be guaranteed this number of eyeballs on VOD or whatever. Like he's really crunched the numbers and he's like, here's a financially responsible amount of money that I can make this movie for and within that i can make whatever movie i want and uh, it's been very inspiring to see i think i'd be fascinated to know you know the future movies that he makes if he can get even bigger stars to attach themselves to the pictures because they can look back at first reformed or at the card counter and be like oh these are quality motion pictures i would like to be involved in them as opposed to looking back and being like what did paul schrader do recently doggy dog Woof. <laughs> well, there aren't a lot of people who are working at the level that he's working at anymore, so uh, I, I hope he can. Starring in the next Paul Schrader film, Tom Hanks. <laughs> so I guess we scratched two off the list there because I had Card Counter on mine as well. So I'll just jump right to a new discovery that I made. And this one, and there'll be two on this list actually, was one that I picked for the horror movie mind melter I did this year, the 24-hour Twitch stream movie marathon, which when I program these films, I try to pick movies that I haven't seen myself because it's very boring to just sit there at my computer alone and watch a movie I've already seen. So I really try hard to get out there searching, going through documents at uh, virtual libraries to figure out, all right, what's a good horror movie that everybody would like would play correctly at this time slot and is weird. And one of them that I stumbled upon is called In the Dark from the year 2000. Now, this is a film shot on mini DV in black and white based on a Richard Lehman novel. And if you are not aware of who Richard Lehman 
is in the 90s, I think, maybe even in the 80s, he was a guy who wrote super gross horror novels. They would have very generic covers, very generic titles, and they'd always have like a Stephen King quote on the cover that was something along the lines of, no one does it like Richard Layman. <laughs> I actually only learned of him when I was dating someone many moons ago who was really obsessed with him, but was ashamed that she was obsessed with him. And I was like, well, there's nothing wrong with this. It's, oh my God, this is really gross. <laughs> Especially that they look like, you know, paperback novels you'd find on like a um, spinner rack at like a grocery store or something like that. And none of his work has ever been adapted except here. And the reason I probably never heard about it is the filmmaker never did anything else and it was never officially released. I'm not sure how it made it to YouTube. Someone was selling it on eBay, but it's super powerful. It's not as gross as even the original source material and they made a lot of changes to it to make it work and the story is about like a woman who finds a note that kind of lets her into this game that where they ask things of her and it just goes on and on from there i heard from a lot of people who stayed up during the horror movie marathon and they said that that was like their favorite film that they saw in all of the ones that I showed. So it deserves a bigger audience. And I was really happy to discover that stuff like that is still out there. Well, I'll do an old movie next as well. I just recently, like a couple days before the year ended, watched a Sam Peckinpah film called Junior Bonner. Have you ever seen yes, it? Yes, I have with um, Mr. Steve McQueen himself. And oh, I know why you watch it because Mr. Jodon Baker's in it. Yeah, I was I was really this is so stupid, but I was really determined to make Jodon Baker my most watched actor on Letterboxd this year and listen folks everyone's got to have a hobby but you went above and beyond didn't you i did actually i mean first of all i had to watch 15 jodon baker movies in total because uh desmond llewellyn was my top ranked actor because if you watch all the james bond movies he's in <laughs> he's in a lot of them but also it's like throughout a lot of the year jodon baker just kept being in movies that i saw like he just kept popping up so he got a good he got a good start anyway that doesn't matter junior bonner is a terrific movie Steve McQueen plays this very past his prime rodeo champion who comes back to his hometown. And when he's there, he finds that his parents have broken up. His father's an alcoholic and his brother, played by Jodon Baker, has become a local real estate mogul. And the Jodon Baker character is, you know, a very tacky guy. He's like steamrolling the beautiful countryside and building ugly suburbs. And Steve McQueen has tried hard to live an authentic life, live an honorable life. And where's it gotten him? He's a broken down man. He has no money. And you may not like the Jodon Baker character, but fuck it. Like he's on his way to his first million. Where's your authenticity gotten you? He's he's happy. And I'm going to spoil Junior Bonner. I hope that's okay. Folks, please skip past 60 seconds while I do this because you should see it. I spent the whole movie thinking Steve McQueen's going to die. It would, it'll be this symbolic ending of how a man like this can't survive in the modern world because that's what a 70s revisionist Western does. But no, he doesn't die. He goes off. And the movie doesn't necessarily have a happy ending. It doesn't necessarily say, oh, he's he's conquered, like he's found a place for himself. It ends with him on the open road not knowing where he's going to go. But I like that Sam Peckinpah left room for the possibility that maybe there is room for him. Maybe we don't all have to become the Jodon Baker character. Maybe there's something else. I don't know what it is, but maybe there's something. What? It's Junior Bonner. I've been calling him Boner all these years. Boing. Yeah, this is a great Sam Peckinpah one. One that doesn't get talked about that much. I mean, it's not like in his late fallow period when you have stuff like the Osterman weekend, which I guess is where Sam Peckinpah went. He's like, oh uh, yeah, I'll do like, what is it, a Robert Ludlum novel or something like that? Sure, I'll do an adaptation of that. I love that Junior Bonner was a flop and it's it's sort of his it's sort of peckinpah's most gentle film and so he was like all right well fuck you i'm gonna make straw dogs next year and that was a huge hit critically and commercially so there you have it that was another good movie i watched for the first time this year by the way it was a bloodthirsty audience that could only give sam peckinpah um what he needed money to keep making movies so my next one speaking of people who made big swings uh, with a very heroic message at the end for example something like speed racer where you know it doesn't matter about commerce art is what really matters and then 
them being proven incorrectly and that you do need commerce to keep going, we have Lana Wachowski's Matrix Resurrections, a movie that I was not very excited for when it was coming out. I mean, I didn't like Jupiter Ascending very much. Did you ever see that movie, Will, Jupiter Ascending? I did, and I didn't like it, but I gotta say the cult around the Wachowskis has become like so vocal in recent years that I'm thinking maybe I missed the boat on Jupiter Ascending. Uh, I watched it a couple weeks ago and I was like, I liked it more than when I first saw it, but all the same issues that I have with it are still very present, like a very sleepy Channing Tatum at the center of the film. But The Matrix Resurrection, sat down, watched it, you know, opened my mind as you should when you're entering The Matrix. And boy, did I have a great time. Such a great time that I watch it the next day just to get like another taste and to see if it was all there. Out of all the big, giant, hundred plus million dollar blockbusters that are out there, especially franchise films, I don't think anyone has been as personal as Matrix Resurrections, which is a direct reaction. You have Neo saying stuff that Lana Wachowski herself, you know, has thought and has struggled with, especially when you consider that the Wachowskis are not very vocal like they're not you know on message boards or even on twitter arguing with people that they keep it all very kind of internalized and then you have this movie which is almost like you know just screaming at the heavens and trying to grapple with this legacy that they've created and what they want people to think of the matrix the first the second the third one now as well as how it's evolved because you know Everyone who sees the movie is like, ah, the action's not as good as it was in The Matrix. And it's not. And I think it's because Lana is, you know, coming to terms with what she thinks is important, what she wants to put on screen. And I should say, I'm not even that big of a, you know, Wachowski cult member. I have not watched Sense8. Every time I try, I'm like, it moves so slow. I can't get into it. That two-season Netflix series, which has a huge fan base. But man, Matrix Resurrections just hit me right where I loved it. And I can completely understand people who are like, I don't like it. And yep, I get it. But man, for me, it just worked. And I hope it worked on a level that the filmmaker intended because, woo, what a blast that is. And I would be very shocked if there are any other Matrix that follows, which, you know, Lana's probably very happy about. I haven't seen it yet. I'm very interested to see it because I know it's sort of a meta movie that is in some ways reckoning with the legacy of the original Matrix trilogy. I think it's really interesting that the Matrix as a metaphor has been so durable, but also so like so flexible that it has become both an allegory for the trans experience as well as like a signifier that the alt-right has taken on, like taking the red pill, that kind of thing. I mean, I understand that the new movie sort of reckons with some of that as well, so I'm interested in seeing that. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, when people say it's kind of a meta movie, it is a straight ahead meta movie the only thing that isn't present are the matrix movies but they get as close to that as you possibly could with this kind of narrative except the medium is one that is much closer to what the matrix represents well i'll tell you another 2021 movie about something possibly even more popular than the than the matrix and that is the beatles it is the beatles get back by peter jackson I watched all eight hours of it, loved every second of it, and I remember when this was first announced, I thought, how could it be possible that there was all this footage from the making of Let It Be that had just gone unused for 50 years? Because you'd think every piece of Beatles footage, like, like surely it's been commercialized in some way. But when you watch this, you realize the Herculean task that Peter Jackson and his crew took on of like shaping this, shaping all this footage from all of these whirring cameras into something that does justice to what was happening in the room, captures the energy of what was happening in the room, but also addresses all of the narratives that we have internalized over the years about this band and where they were at that moment. You see the dynamics that are going on between the band. You see like the ways that they're fraying. You see the ways that it's not sustainable anymore. But then you also see like the great friendship between these four men. And you also see how they're able to come together and collaborate and create work that's so much greater together than it would be if they'd started doing it apart so many incredible moments that a camera was there to capture like that moment where paul's just strumming on his guitar and after like three minutes he's already just 
he's just created get back out of nowhere you see that and it's like what a what a privilege that there was a camera there to capture it have you seen any of it i watched like the first hour and i went "Eh, i'll get back to this at some other point (laughs) (laughs) it's just not really my thing and i love the beatles back in the day i don't know why and everybody you know who's really into it got really into it but yeah i just couldn't really connect with it but i'm looking forward to the other eight hour documentaries about i don't know how aerosmith wrote um, you know the rock and roll roller coaster or songs or something like that. What do you think of the debate around the kind of digital polishing of the footage in the documentary? Oh, it looks like shit. <laughs> Awful. Don't yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I basically agree. Although, like, I, I mean, I can understand the argument for it that he's trying to he's trying to make it look like it's not archival. He's trying to make it look like it's happening right now so that you can be immersed in it. Yeah, but the thing is that you will always know that it's in the past and it's the interactions between the people on screen that makes you kind of like click into it and connect with it it's not tricking the audience into i just filmed this last week even though it looks like nothing that has ever been filmed because they all look like wax dummies i'm worried about the idea that people like people are going to be encouraged to not want to engage with any anything that doesn't have the visual texture of a Netflix soap opera. It's so funny that I remember Netflix announcing that they were like partnering with some TV company to, you know, uh, make sure that the TVs are tuned correctly to show Netflix product. And I'm like, is it just gray? Like, is that the setting that you turn on? <laughs> what could it possibly be? Almost no Netflix movies that are produced in-house are that like visually spectacular. And no, this is not an invitation for anyone to send me outliers i'm just saying that like everybody knows that when you watch streaming product they have a particular look to them the same way that marvel movies do so let's hear an old one from you i on the baster video podcast have the pleasure of every week me and mark pick a movie that's coming in that we have never seen either of us and one of them like genuinely surprised me this year which was a little picture called bingo from 1991 now will as a child around my age you've seen this cover dog with sunglasses on it staring right down the lens yep it's forever seared in my memory i saw it probably every week at the video store for 10 years never any interest in renting it no listen never. we were an Airbud family canada represent because Airbud is a canadian film but so we watched this and what i discovered was it's a matthew robbins film who's a guy who doesn't get talked about very much but i've liked almost everything that he's done like he wrote and directed dragon slayer which i checked out this year as well and found delightful which is kind of like this big budget fantasy film which is also kind of a downer and miserable he wrote uh, the sugarland express the first Steven Spielberg film. He directed a Corvette Summer, that bummer of a Mark Hamill film that makes it look like a boner comedy, like the cover and stuff like that. And Bingo is, you know, what the cover promises, a wacky dog, but this is the wackiest dog you've ever seen. It starts with him as a puppy having to jump through flaming hoops in a circus. And then when his mother passes away in an accident, it then cuts to the dog laying in front of a giant statue of the mother dog. So that's the wavelength the film is playing on, where the dog can do anything. It can drive a car. It fucks, because, of course, puppies come into play. At one point, the FBI arrests the dog because it has to testify in court against criminals that it foiled. And the prosecutor gets the judge to get the dog to be involved with the criminals because the dog doesn't have an alibi. So the dog goes to jail. It's just a wacky delight of something that in 1991, there weren't really those kind of movies that were being made and yeah i just had a ball with it wow i never thought i'd say this but you're really selling me on bingo matthew robbins <laughs> became good friends with guillermo del toro and he wrote a bunch of scripts with him including mimic and uh, crimson peak down the line and matthew robbins looking at his imdb recently he wrote an, a bollywood movie <laughs> like he's one of the guys who went over to india so what do you got will when it comes to older stuff well here's one that i know you're familiar with and i'm not just blowing smoke because you released it on blu-ray but i watched a little movie called thrilling bloody sword and i loved it it's a taiwanese martial arts fantasy a loose retelling of snow white believe it or not and i mean it's like being in a pinball machine you've got so much cool fun stuff you got fire breathing dragons a guy in a bear suit a guy who fights a giant set of disembodied (laughs) teeth and then like a muck man like a melty dude who can break apart attacks so many things so many incredible sights in this film everything takes place on these 
these really cheap sets with beautiful painted backdrops, all these paper mache props, and everyone is wearing these beautiful thrift store costumes. Like, uh, this is one of two Taiwanese genre movies on my list, and I'm very interested in learning more about Taiwan cinema and its genre cinema, because I think like a lot of Western movie fans, I spent a lot of time assuming that a lot of Taiwanese movies were just Hong Kong movies, you know, but they're not. Like, the sense that I get, we did an episode on Pearl Chang some time ago, and, you know, there, there are so many so many movies that we like, like Fantasy Mission Force or Master of the Flying Guillotine, where, you know, they're Taiwanese films, and they're a little cheaper, they're a little tackier, and they're just a little stranger than some of the genre movies that were being done in Hong Kong at the time. And it's just a, it's just a great place to be. It would be curious to see if, like, you know, people become aware of it because Hong Kong cinema, specifically martial arts cinema, has never been more popular with like genre fans than it is now. But like when I was reading about Hong Kong cinema, there was never a separation between Taiwanese and Hong Kong, like you said. And it's only when I would started to like put these movies out on Blu-ray and doing more research that I realized how big a difference there was and that aesthetically and the way they approach things is different because, you know, they're going for a different audience and they have less money, so they have to completely change the approach of how they do things. And I'm glad that you enjoyed Thrilling Bloody Sword. And yeah, that was a really wild one that I could put out on Blu-ray as my first scan. So what's a new movie from you? I'm going to pick one that I feel like came out and then everybody talked about it for maybe a day, then disappeared. And listen, every year this man gets a slot on my list. It's... My main dude, Steven Soderbergh, and his film No Sudden Move. Did you get a chance to watch it, Will? I did not. Steven Soderbergh makes so many movies that I probably watch about half of them. Uh, no Sudden Move is a period piece heist picture with Don Cheadle, Brendan Fraser, and a whole bunch of other kind of, you know, oh, I know that actor appearing in this stuff. And it just moves. It's super fun and Really, the only thing I saw people talk about is that Soderbergh used really outdated lenses. And I always think about them as they're the Shaw Brothers lenses, which are so wide angle, they kind of give like a fisheye on the sides. You know what I mean, right, Will? So when you move, it compresses the image and people hated it. Like everyone on Twitter was like, oh, it takes me out of this movie. And I'm like, no, Steven, you got it. It's great. The film itself is about a heist. And then it ends up being about more than that, about how like organizations are willing to destroy industries in Detroit to be able to just make more money, even if it leaves everybody destitute. And yeah, just a crackerjack film. And uh, personally, Steven Soderbergh, he just can't make enough movies for me to watch. And this is the last one that came out. I think he had another one, Let Them All Talk, that came out in 2021 as well, right? Right. Which I also didn't see and which I think was kind of like not all that well received, right? Oh, I loved Let Them All Talk as well. Uh, the only one that I didn't like recently of Steven Soderbergh was The Laundromat. P.U. that movie. Oh, that's the one I'm thinking about. That's right. The, his other Meryl Streep movie. <laughs> Awful. I, I gotta say, I, I like that you like the visual experiments that he's doing. I kind of... Ugh, I don't know. Listen, one of us is capable of grappling with difficult art. The other one, more <laughs> of a mainstream guy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, clearly. I would kind of like him to make another movie that looks like a normal movie again. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, no. But hey, I respect him. He's trying new stuff, and I think that's great, and I think that's beautiful. I was a little disappointed. He promised that he was only going to make movies on iPhones from now on. <laughs> and then I saw a photo from Let Them All Talk, and they're shooting on, like, I don't know, an Aerie or a Red or something like that. I'm like, you traitor. Well, speaking of radical experimental film makers here's one by by guys who you definitely know and in fact maybe this one's even on your list it's called heard she got married from oh you know it's on my list <laughs> yeah okay let's uh let, let's let's get it done then by uh director charlie roxburgh and writer star matt farley obviously on this podcast we bow to we bow to none in our love of these two these are the two new england based filmmakers who have been making backyard movies for years now like don't let the river beast get you local legends freaky farley this one which is their first completed feature film in 5 years uh, is is a different kind of movie from them. They've described it as a suburban noir. It's about a mildly successful singer-songwriter, played by Matt Farley, who returns to his hometown, and he constantly finds himself reminded of how easy it is to fail when you pursue your dreams, or how society tells us that we shouldn't pursue our dreams. All the people that he knew when he was growing up, growing up who he dreamed of conquering the music business with, uh, have receded into normal adult lives and nine to five work. But 
However, a new figure enters his life, uh, his his mailman, played very brilliantly by Chris Peterson, who also becomes his bassist in his new band. But his mailman is having some strange contact with some of the people that uh, Matt Farley left behind, which leads them into this strange mystery plot with a very surprising conclusion. And I found this movie quite moving because the message of a lot of the Farley-Roxburgh movies, whether explicitly or implicitly, is about the need to create, the need to keep creating, the need to be an artistic person, even if the whole world is indifferent to you. And this is a movie that adds a new kind of middle-aged uh, ambivalence to that feeling. It's a movie that says, yes, it's very important to continue creating, but it's not going to become easier as you get older. There's always a darkness to all the Moturn films, even something like Freaky Farley, which is like really goofy on the surface, has a kind of like really grim undercurrent. And I think that dramatically it's the most potent it's ever been in Her She Got Married, that there's kind of like a weightiness to the affairs that really works with the script that they've written. I mean, I remember when they pitched it, I was like, is it going to be like a comedy? Like, what is this going to be? And it is comedic, but it's also not outright silly, which I think is probably the first time they've attempted it. And it just works within the confines of the filmmaking universe that they've built. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, all their movies have that homemade quality. Uh, it's all of these amateur actors or non-actors who are, you know, giving very sincere, sometimes kind of stilted performances. And in certain other movies, it's funny. And in this movie, it's harnessed for something else. Like it's used to create the vibe of this town that he used to know and that he's back in that's just not quite right anymore. And Charlie Roxburgh, the director, has talked about how he did approach his film slightly differently and uh, Matt Farley let him an extra five minutes sometimes to frame a shot <laughs> and light it. And you could definitely tell in the movie's compositions, like we're not just blowing smoke up. There is some genuinely like, wow, this works dramatically visually for the thematic content that they're tackling. Yeah. And of course, this movie will be available uh, on the Hurt She Got Married Blu-ray, available at GoldenJimVideo.com. Yes, yes. And I, I'm not just raising these movies because Justin is making some money off them. I'm raising, you know, I, I'm not making money off these. Uh, I'm just a believer in the product. Absolutely. Like, these are movies that I genuinely love. Like, I wouldn't be putting them out if I didn't like love them that's the one thing about golden age of videos you know if i'm putting something out on blu-ray even bella lugosi meets a brooklyn gorilla it's because i love it in some way one of the discoveries that i made this year and this is an odd one which is i don't know where it came from it was just on my letterbox watch list and i'm like huh what is this i don't know this director it's a russian picture but i guess i'll watch it it's called walking the streets of moscow and i don't know where it falls within like kind of the russian in filmmaking is a part of the new wave because it came out in 1964 directed by oh boy i'm gonna butcher this guy's name uh georgie danilia and i'm not familiar with any of his other films but i just sat there and watched this movie and wow did it blow me away it's essentially a plotless film about a bunch of friends one of them's getting married and he's supposed to go into the army and it's just them wandering around moscow for a day like from sunup all the way to sundown. They go to the fair, they just have fun adventures, and it was an absolute delight in the same way that like the best early French New Wave films are, that it's just like in your face, you feel like you're living with these characters, and it also feels real, even though that it's been made a long time ago in a place that we didn't live, it feels very authentic. And man, yeah, this one, Walking the Streets of Moscow, 1964, just blew me away. Oh, it sounds great. I've never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I heard about it either probably an interview with a director that's usually where it happens if i see a movie that i don't know what it is i write it down or add it to my letterbox watch list if they're talking about something positively that's the one thing i wish letterbox would do and i did get in contact with them, with them briefly i'm like please on the watch list let us make notes about why we added it <laughs> at this time i'll talk about the other taiwanese genre movie that's on my list of discoveries it's on the society files of shanghai from 1981 this is part of a little wave of movies in the late 70s and early 80s called the black movies they were gritty violent exploitation movies largely for working-class audiences dealing in really unsavory subjects, and they flourished in, in Taiwan during that period. And the movie opens with a high-ranking Chinese general being stabbed by a gang led by his one-time lover. 
and there's a Citizen Kane-like flashback structure where the lead detective has to find out what motivated her to do this. And of course, it untangles a huge web of corruption going up to the very highest levels of the Chinese government. This is a tough and brutal movie in both style and content, and I understand that the filmmakers were able to get away with a lot in this movie, like they were able to slip a lot past the strict Taiwanese censorship because it was essentially anti-People's Republic propaganda, you know, so it was useful to them. That's what they uh, figured out in the black movies, which is, hey, if we drape it over politics, then we can make it as exploitative as we can. And, you know, in it's the best of both worlds. You've got all the good exploitation stuff that you love, but with... Yeah, righteous political anger as well. I, I mean, you know, this is a movie that really feels like it came up from the bowels of hell. If you can find it, if you can find a file floating around, uh, it's it's a good one. I believe that it was released through, like, the Taiwanese Film Archive did an online retrospective, and it's been popping up on YouTube from there. They did, like, that one. They did Challenge of the Lady Ninja. The, the Woman Revenge. Lady Avenger, that's right. And there were a few other ones as well, and I feel like a company like Vinegar Syndrome or maybe Arrow Films is going to jump on that, like just release a Taiwanese black movie set. I know there was a DVD set that was released in Hong Kong or Taiwan. I've seen it online, but like those movies don't travel at all. And boy, they sure deserve to be, especially like all those early ones when you get people like Chu Yang Ping, director of Fantasy Mission Force, writing for those films. Uh, Never Too Late to Repent. That's the name of another really good one that people should check out. I'll give you another new one that I liked. Bergman Island by me. Mia Hansen Love. In this movie, Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth star as a couple, a pair of filmmakers who visit Ingmar Bergman's home on the island of Faro as part of an artistic retreat. Bergman's home has been turned into a sort of tourist attraction where artists can go and work and soak up some of the Bergman energy. And I like this movie. I like a lot about this movie. I like its depiction of a relationship where something isn't quite clicking anymore. Like, Neither of these two are bad people, but there's a certain chemistry missing, and there's also the issue that he is slightly more successful than her, which goes unspoken, but which is nevertheless ever-present. I'm so glad that Tim Roth got to get top billing once again. Oh, and he's great. I, I'm so happy to see Tim Roth in a good movie for a change. <laughs> As opposed to, like, a Chinese-produced movie or something like or that. Or that one where he played, like, Sep Blatter, the head of the, the soccer organization. You know, just a lot of, a lot of garbage that he's in but oh i thought you were thinking of that uh, rennie harlan film that we watched <laughs> with pierce brosnan and tim roth yeah yeah that's a bad one um but anyway he's very good in this but there's a lot more i like about it too i like the way that it engages i think productively with how we relate to great artists you know it sort of makes fun of the idea of turning an artist's home into a tourist spot you know makes fun of the idea of going on a tour of the filming locations and finding the rock from through a glass darkly or whatever but it also has a certain amount of reverence like tangible reverence for those spaces. And the movie also raises the question of when we go to Bergman's house to soak up his vibes, what are we soaking up? Are we soaking up the genius who made all those masterpieces or the man who behaved abominably to all the people who were close to him? And to what extent are those two things extricable? And just on top of that, the movie has a great vibe, has great atmosphere, uh, nice, nice, uh, sunny scenery. Loved being so in it. So I'm going to jump onto an old one because me and Will had a lot that were the same on our list. And one that I very much enjoyed was Back to Back, Face to Face. And this is one that is directed by Huan Shanxing. And it is like the ultimate mainland Chinese film in the fact that it was made in 1994 and this guy could just get it past the censor somehow. It's about a bureaucrat that works for the government I believe in the cultural section and all he wants is a promotion. And when he doesn't get it and it's given to somebody else, he unleashes every little trick that he has in his book, turning people against each other, putting roadblocks, you know, just creating weird issues that just arise in this kind of environment to get where he needs to be. It is darkly comic. It does end a little positively in a way that you feel that, you know, someone came in and is like, you can't have this end on a downer or have the person completely succeeding without having a moral change of heart. But, well, it is great. And the director is one that I only became aware of because many years ago, Greedy Hendrix wrote an article about him because early on he made these kind of very acidic mainland Chinese film about like what it is 
is to live in it and how you get by it. There's one called The Black Cannon Incident, which was his first film, about a guy who's playing chess through mail, like sending moves to each other. And one of the moves that he sends out gets taken by a government official and is read incorrectly as a, you know, move that he wants to do against the government. So he essentially gets captured and just tortured until the end of the movie where he lets he's let go and he's like thank the government for realizing that you made a mistake doing what you did and the last line of the movie i believe is the guy going i'll never play chess again what's the filmmaker up to now oh boy he is the most party line filmmaker you can get he co-directed the founding of the republic he directed a biopic about mao that came out in 2019 and he also of course was one of the 10 co-directors on the battle at lake changing <laughs> The recent uh, big, gigantic, billion-dollar blockbuster that was released in mainland China. By the way, did you see the trailer for Zhang Yimou's new movie, the sharpshooter movie? He made an American sniper, but in China. You know I did. (laughs) And all of these movies, I cannot tell them apart at this point. I'm so excited for when China invades Taiwan, and then we can get Ho Xiao Shen to make one of these things. Oh, boy. Don't get on that invading (laughs) Taiwan train, Will. Uh, So anyway, uh, speaking of world affairs, I think the last movie that I have, the last new movie that I have to talk about is Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, a much acclaimed Romanian film. It's one of those movies that you'd call specific but universal. You know, it's about Romania in 2021, and it really has the texture of Romania in 2021, or at least what I imagine it to be. I've never been there, but it's also about the world. The main character is a respected and dignified school teacher who becomes the center of a firestorm of local controversy when a video of her having sex with her husband finds its way online. The movie is divided into a number of clear sections. I love the first section where it just follows her around as she's making her way around Bucharest trying to get some errands done while also fielding a bunch of phone calls about this situation that she's in. And as she walks around the city... You know, everything that's bad and ugly and hypocritical about this city is comparable to what's bad in Toronto or anywhere. And then there's the last section of the film where she has a meeting with the parents and the school leadership where they're supposed to have this big discussion on whether or not she will be allowed to stay at the school. And you see a whole cross section of society there. And through this debate, like you you wonder can society even function anymore uh, like it's it's a movie it's a movie that i think is very uh, in a very funny way and in a very observant way uh, really reckons with the fact that like a lot of stuff is really broken right now. And it's always been broken, but uh, are we just realizing it now? Broken in some new ways now. Well, I haven't seen this film, but I'm comfortable because I'm a tastemaker and I put this director's film, Aphorim, on my list back in 2016, I think. Not bad. You know what? I, you're going to like this movie. I recommend it, especially if you liked uh, the previous movie. And I had I had no memory of that. I thought I heard of this director for the first time two months yeah, ago. Yeah, listen, some people are, you know, tuned in to what's going on in the movie scene. And then there's other people People like me and you who are not <laughs> because yeah you thought that was going in a different direction too many new movies what is this licorice pizza movie is it coming out i don't know Oh man i may never see licorice pizza now that <laughs> me neither <laughs> not now that there's another lockdown in ontario who knows so i have an older movie on my list haunted school it came out in 1995 it is a big special effects bonanza the from japan super fun i'm shocked i never saw it before there's like three other films in the series and only a couple of them are subtitled which shows how little attention is paid to this series I had a delight showing it during my horror movie marathon, but my last new movie is one that I know that Will enjoyed quite a bit as well. Because me and Will, we love the little guy, right? Especially if that little guy on screen is willing to risk his life without seeing his face and just injure himself, perhaps for the rest of his life, for a Jackie Chan film. Yes, that's right. I'm talking about Kung Fu Stuntman. Oh, how did I forget this movie? This is such a good movie. It may have come out in 2020, but it came out on like physical media in 2021. And this is, you know, when I saw the like the log line, I'm like, ugh, another one of these. But they've never been this deep cut as Kung Fu Stuntman. Oh, man, I love this movie so much. Like it has it has just about everyone in it. All of your favorite stars, with the conspicuous exception of Jackie Chan, 
are in this movie. You got Sam Hung, you got Choi Hark, but more importantly, you've got so many stuntmen, stuntmen from all the way back to the 70s talking about their experiences. And there's there's one stuntman, I think his name is Ewan Mo. He's talking about how he was uh, he was working, he was on part of Sam Hung's stunt team and they were making Heart of the Dragon. And there's a scene in that movie, the big stunt at the end where they all have to run out of like the 10th floor of an office building and jump out while a bomb explodes behind them. So they like they jump out of this like 10th floor and they're just landing on some shitty mattresses or whatever 10 floors down and there's a bomb behind them. So it's already one of the most dangerous stunts that's ever been attempted. And then just before rolling, he steps on a nail and they're like, well, okay, we better take the nail out. We'll give you five minutes to recover, and uh, you're doing the stunt. And I, that story also ends with Chin Kar Lok being like, I landed first, and I was about to get up, but then I realized I hadn't hit the ground yet. I heard thump, thump, thump around me. <laughs> He's like, oh, shit. Yeah, and it's such a, it's not only an exhilarating movie, because you have that first rush at the beginning of like, look at all these stuntmen, and then look at these clips of these destifying things. It's also a very sad movie, because these stuntmen risk their bodies every day putting this art on screen, and they're not appreciated, none of them have very much money left, and because they're old, they can't be stuntmen anymore, and you can't all be like stunt choreographers. And at the same time, you know, the movie makes a good point of saying like, even the young people coming up, they do not have the torturous peaking opera training that all the stuntmen who made the Hong Kong film industry had to be able to put what we saw on screen. Yeah, but we'll always have the memories. The guy living in the shack is like, I would also like maybe perhaps a little bit of money if this movie continues to be distributed, but... So that's it for all the movies that we saw this year. And, you know, there's a lot of joy in that, in those um, 20 movies that we talked about. Yeah, however many it was. Uh, some good, you know what? I feel good. Some some good new movies, some good old movies. Movies, I like them. They're, they're yours to discover. So do we have any letters this week, Justin? We do have a letter from Damien Twomey. It goes, hey, Justin and Will, I thought I would join the long list of listeners writing to you from Australia. You were both pondering once on a show many, many memes ago why so many Australians seem to listen to your podcast. If I had to guess, I'd say it's because, like in Canada, our cinemas are saturated with U.S. films, their film culture has infiltrated every aspect of our own, but we are, nevertheless, outsiders looking in, so perhaps responding to your similarly USA-adjacent sensibility. I've been meaning to write you for a long time now, ever since I received my Gold Ninja video limited release Blu-ray of The Other Side of Gary Graver. When it arrived in the mail, I immediately put on the embracers and within five minutes was cursing you both. (laughs) How could I let those funny-looking Canadians swindle me out of my hard-earned dollars on such a turkey? Then I restarted the movie with your commentary track. Oh boy, what a delight. I now love Gary Graver as much as both of you and feel the same sadness that he was never able to break through and get the recognition he deserves. I'd love to see a bio made about Graver by someone in Hollywood. His story would make such a great feature film. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 interested in that letter. I actually think like we should have put a disclaimer on that movie that's like We did in our intro that's we right. say it. like like basically do not do not watch without the commentary. <laughs> Cuz that was never supposed to be the main feature on the disc, which is why I didn't want to put like the embracers on the cover. I actually think the uh, other picture on that disc is much better, but you know, it ended up appearing on the disc. I thought it was very important and woo, that commentary is a lot of fun as well. So the letter continues. Might I say the important cinema club is easily the most important cinema club podcast out there. Uh, we agree. You have, introduced- <laughs> you have introduced me to so many auteurs. I never have heard otherwise. I particularly enjoy hearing about any filmmaker whose films dreamlike qualities you hone in on, like Pearl Chang, Jan Schwankmeyer, Apichapong, but really all our discussions are fascinating. The episodes on Miklos Jankos, Lizzie Borden, and Jess Franco were some of my favorites. Ah, I'm glad there's a Miklos guy out there. Yeah, uh, I gotta say The Red and the White was a movie that I considered bringing up on this episode. A really a really great movie that's lingered with me. I would like to request that you guys do an episode on an Australian director at some stage. Nearly 300 episodes and not one single Aussie. I'm shocked about that, but you know what? He's probably right. He's not the first person to bring this up either. We really do need to do an Australian director, and it can't be a Paul Hogan episode, even though that's (laughs) what I want to do. Oh, the letter continues. We have a lot more to offer than just Crocodile Dundee. Uh, There you go. What if we did? Um, uh, okay, we can. We'd probably get classier than this. But um, what about Brian Trenchard Smith? Yeah, we could do that. I mean, we could um, give people what they want, like George Miller or Peter Weir. We should do. Let's do Peter Weir. Or who is it? Was Was Peter Weir the one who did Picnic at Hanging? Yes, Rock? he did. He also did Master and Commander, The Truman Show, uh, The Last Broadcast. Yeah, I'd rather do. Uh... <laughs> 
yeah, we could do Picnic at Hanging Rock and I don't know, uh, the Truman Show. There you go. Boom. Done. Yeah. All right. We should we should do. Let's put an Aussie on the on deck for soon. Anyway, I'll continue listening no matter who you cover. Well, guess what? It's Crocodile Dundee. That's what we're doing. That's not a knife. This is an knife. <laughs> oh, no. Will, I had an Aussie on deck. Remember? Don't say his name. <laughs> Ready to go. Oh, that's right. Okay, well, we will uh, we will do that person. <laughs> In closing, I'd just like to say that the episode on Jordan Baker was the greatest Christmas gift any true cinephile could ask for. Keep up the good work, Damien. Well, thanks, Damien. I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right, so if you want to send us letters, you can do so at Podcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we're just talking about our favorite things that are not movies in 2021. Well, movie adjacent, come on. It's a movie-related podcast. Yeah, yeah. Probably books, Blu-rays, lots of Blu-ray talks, and just, you know, events that happened that hopefully you can enjoy in some way as well. And it's not just like, man, I went to the greatest theme park in the world. So you can check that out on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Club. So, so next week will George Lucas non Star Wars movies. I'm excited to delve into this because I've never seen THX 11 whatever it is 38 1138 and I've also never seen American Graffiti. Oh, I'm surprised you've never seen American Graffiti. I know my knowledge of George Lucas begins and ends with Star Wars. There are those who say that he was a very talented filmmaker who was led over to the dark side, if you will, by the success of Star Wars. Um, I don't know. I'd like to find out. And of course, we'll also be watching Strange Magic, the animated film he made, the Radio Land Murders, <laughs> more American Graffiti. Uh, How- Howard the Duck. <laughs> yeah, Howard the Duck. Um, that's right. He produced that. So that's what we're doing next week. Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Slime. Thanks for listening. Ho, ho, ho. The holidays may be over, but the battle has not yet been completed. No, oh, my Grinch oh, like powers. Oh, it's doing nothing for Grinch. me. Eat this, Grinch. I, Skullington, will now sing a song to destroy you. It is after Christmas. Everybody must listen to me, Ebenezer Scrooge. Just listen to me. I'm rich. I'm in control of all of this. I also sound kind of like the Grinch. It can't be. Cuckoo. It's baby New Year. Yes, I have come to bring in the new year. All of these holiday troubles do not matter anymore. You're right. Why are we fighting? Christmas is past. Oh, oh, oh. if Christmas is about one thing, it's about forgiveness. Bring it in, Santa. Oh. Mm. And now that the holiday is done, you must all die. Well, now that that is done, some silliness you had to pay attention to the last five episodes to get even the slightest bit of sense of, we'd like to remind you to please review The Important Cinema Club on Apple Podcasts, because we really appreciate it. And now, I would like to thank every single one of our current Patreon subscribers. So buckle up because I'm about to read every name. So thank you very much to AJ Kishta, AJ Serrano, Aaron Dawson, Abash Pudding, Adam Nabe, Adam Nightingale, Adam Trainer, Adam W, Adam Walters, A Hack Fraud, Aiden Green, Aileen O'Daly, AJ Cassinas, AJS124, Albert Davis, Alex, Alex Gylerin, Alex Griffiths, Alex Honeydew, Alex Keys, Alex Laird, Alex Line, Alex Ross, Alex Wilson, Alexander Lee, Alexander Roth, Alexander Wifford, Alexander Nelson, Ali Fornius, Alan Butt, Amy, Amy Butterfield, Anders, Anders Bosca, Andrew Ford, Andrew Knight, Andrew Craybaum, Andrew Lincoln, Andrew M, Andrew McClure, Andy Stone, Andy Willick, Annette Anonymous, Anthony Vitamia, Anton Person Flygear, Apple Ventus, April Mansky. Austin Kimmel, Avery Brooks, Battleground Productions, BDA, Ben, Ben Borcott, Ben Turnbull, Benjamin Asbury, Benjamin J. Hedrick, Bennett Glace, Billy, Billy Jackson, B. Men, Bradley Dixon, Bradley Roy, Brandon Lim, Brandon White, Brandon Murray, Brent Oliver, Brian Varney, Bryce Jones, Buck Bloomingdale, Kaylin Penny, Callum, Cameron, Cameron Gunn, Cameron Gunn, Cameron Maitland, Kenson, Kessoy, Carl Fritz, Carlos Ramirez, CF, Charles Marr, Charles F., Charlie, Charles Roxburgh, Chase East, Chen John, Chris, Chris Berry Goss, Chris Berrybay, Chris Chan, Chris Dunn, Chris Gillen, Chris Swaljay, Christopher Nicastro, Christopher Salt, Clint Isinger, CMPN, Cole Flowers, Cole Kirkendall, Cole Smith, Colin Griffiths, Connor Willingham, Conrad. Falco, Corey Morian, Chrono Clone, Curtis, CWW, Dan Dillon, Dan Petley, Dan Quadri, Daniel Acosta, Daniel Benoit, Daniel Champion, Daniel Halquist, Daniel Hansen, Daniel Lipinski, Daniel Newton, Daniel Nichols, Daniel Port, Daniel Ruffershe, Daniel Ross, Danny Ramon, Daryl Atkinson, David David, David Annandale, David Bertrand, David Dean, David Everett, David Sicey, David Springfield, David T, Demian, Dennis Fillion, Dennis Rowland, Derek Cleanser, Derek, Derek Schultz, Dylan, Dylan Birch, Don Sinicola, Domenico Lo Buglio, Donald Patterson, Dove Sound, Dr. William Rosno, Dustin Bullock, Dustin Eisman, Dylan Harrington, Ed Begley Jr., Einar Inarson, Elliot Sharon, Elliot Toom, Elliot Shugel, Emalco, Emil Dirks, Emily Lombardo, Emmett Crudus, Andre Lecfee, 
Enrico Sioni, Eric Gilliland, Eric Trelinski, Eric Ward, Eric, Eric Jarvis, Aaron Whiteley, Esme Holden, Ethan, Ethan Vespi, Etienne Crepeau, Evan, Evan Furness, Evan Laffer, Ferris Zaki, Forrest Sturgis, Fred Skensi, Frida Granados, Galen Wilson, Garris Marley, Garris Pashley, Garris Franzen, Geoff Wood Jones, George Shaw, Giant Gorilla, mm, I like that one, Glenn Del Rossi, Gloomy Cleric, Graham, Graham, Paul Donovan, Greg McDonald, Greg McGuire, Gregory, Gregory Ellis, Guy Davidson, Guy Nelson, Hank Ozaki, Harris Frost, Harry Westergaard, Henry Nerg, Henry Belger, Hugo Perduroso, IG, Ian Moss, Ian Elliott, Ian Kleiss, Ian McNamara, Ivan Stratton, Ivy Parsons, Jay, Jay Scully, JP McDevitt, Jack Anderson, Jack Book, Jack Brown, Jack Frain Reed, Jack Tz, Jacob, 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 Jacob Bowles, Jacob Peterson, Jake, Jacob Durasco, James Baker, James Cullen, James Knight, James Long, James Majura, James Morgan Wells, James Waters, Jamie Wright, Jan Nutson, Jane Smith, Jason Bacon, Yavia Nunez, Jay, Jay Long, Jean Robin, Just Style, Jennifer Gibbon, Jeremy Hawkins, Jeremy Keys, Jared and Cron, Jerry, Lally, Jesse, Jesse Edwards, Jesse Ferguson, Jesse Shira, Jesse Fox, Jim Campbell, Jim Fans, Jimmy R, Jerk Araya, Joe Boss, Joe Joe, Joe Clark, Joe Greenwood, Joe Kickass, Joe McGregor, Joe Probus, Johan Masaidi, Johan Trashinger, John Abel, John Campbell, John Carter, John Daniel, John Paul McKenna, John Petrovic, John Semley, John Warner, Johnny McConnie, John Johnner, Jush, Jordan Schussenberg, Jordan Friedland, Jordy Matson, Georgie Rodriguez, Joseph DeLeo, Joseph Torchinski, Joseph Vock, Josh, Josh Ferlin, Josh Irons, Josh LaBelle, Joshua Clark, Joshua Gonzalez, JT60564, Ewan Demian, Jude, Lindsay, Ua Matula, Julian Kopkus, Justin Haley, Justin W, K Walsh, K Parrington, Ken Nichols, K Perrington, Kevin Barr, Kevin Johnson, Kevin Sini, Kevin Sheets, KL, Kurt Freeman, Kyle Bates, Kyle Bycroft, Kyle McClure, Kyle McStay, ICC, Lyle Tyler, Lance Garrickson, Lee Henderson, Leaf Shafflin, Leo Nichols, Liam James, Lynn Olson, Lisa Silver, Liz Ryerson, Labibs, Lobster Johnson, Lauren Kilgore, Louis Waters, Louis Philip Gagnon, Lucas Berwizik, Louis Samra, Luke, Maggie CS, Mashed Potatoes, Mark Sorshini, Mark Sornige, Mark Britton, Mark Flanagan, Mark Kerwan, Mark R. Deming, Marquis de Suave, Matt Cook, Matt Haller, Matt Kluge, Matthew Blankcarn, Matthew Farley, Matthew Gods, Matthew Gatsby, Matthew Thomas, Matthew Welsh, Matthew Elanger, Meg, Megan Franklin, Meow Nyan, Michael Carroll, Michael Davies, Michael Denizio, Michael Dinonzio, Michael Frollo, Michael Garland, Michael Keane, Michael Kerrigan, Michael Knott, Michael Lane, Michael Willis, Mike Crotch, Mike Woods, Mila Staniski, Minjun, and K. Mura, Nate Hamlet, Nate St. Paul, Nathan Wisnicki, Nathaniel Hendricks, Nathaniel Tyson, Ned Grade, Nitzan Zimmerman, Neil Fuller, Nestor Trujillo, Nicholas Reed, Nick, Nick Barzak, Nick Martin, Nico Schmidt, Norm Munoz, Nor, OBC, Oral Drumbum, Orin Lyman, Paradingo, Party with Pizzy, Patrick Kennedy, Patrick O'Donnell, Paul Matichuk, Pete Can, Peter Gurn, Peter Kaplowski, Peter McCann, Peter McKay, Peyton Cook, Phil Brown, Philip DeClue. Yes, that's right. My brother also subscribes to this Patreon. He has to pay. And it's very much appreciated. Philip Dryzen, Philip Segal, Phoebe, Preston McFarland, Quinn Henderson, Rainer Kienbach, Ralph Rasha Smith, Ren Rutmus, Richard Chandler, Rick Ricknett, Rob, Rob Lee, Robbie Carroll, Robert Krantz, Robert McDonald, Robert Youngblood, Rose Gunn, Roy Denbor, Ryan Dorfler, Sadie Carter, Sam Sagan, Sarah Clearney, Scotty Gilmer, Sean Dornis, Sean Onright, Sean Fuller, Sean White, Sebastian Lepret, Cess Lejacques, Sean Glynis, Show Date, Sick Turtle, Simon Barrett, Shinjin, S.J. Adams, Spencer, Stein, Eric, Rutledal, Stan Walker, Stephen Kielbach, Stephen Mortland, Stephen Vag, Stephen Nutt, Stephen Putz, Stuart Anderson, Stuart Shepard, Ted Rowland, Teddy Buffett, Terry McCarthy, ThatShelf.com, The Dread Lottery, The Art of V, Theodore Falk, Theodore Schultz, The Welfare Lobby, Thomas, Thomas Johnson, Thomas Ronstadt, Thomas Sansaw, Thomas Shepard, Tim, Tim C, Tim Schofield, Tim C. Klein, Thomas, Travis Cody Johnson, Trey McClinley, Tristan Wheeler, Turkin Yeland, Ty Trollinger, Vehement Films, Vincente Perez, Vinicus LS, Vocational Dragon, W. Parker Wade, Warble Flutter, Wendy Lou, Will Barshop, Will C, William Buckingham, William Cumby, William Jones, William Mansley, William Near Plastow, William Walker, Wolf Walden, Y2K Podcast, Jan Graf, Yeso, Zach Osgood, Zach W, Zach H, Zach Tennant, Zachary Ainsley, Zachary Kaplan, Zach, Zach Fowler, Zach L, Zian Buasi, Zoid Wheeler, and that's it. Thank you all for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. And now we return you to your regular scheduled programming. Sam O'Hung's name came up on the episode. I recently like stuck my hand into a big bucket of Sam O'Hung movies, metaphorically, and pulled out one at random, and I pulled out Carry On Pickpocket from 1982. You know, just not one that I had really ever heard a lot of people talk about, and I watched it and very much enjoyed it. It's like a pure kind of Chinese New Year comedy that has, you know, a lot of a lot of goofy comedy stuff, a lot of st- just all sorts of stuff with like four or five absolutely historic, incredible action scenes sprinkled throughout. And those four or five scenes might not even be in Sammo Hung's top 10 action scenes. Like if you look on Letterboxd, Carry On Pickpocket is way low on his director filmography when it comes to popularity. Uh, right behind a favorite of me and Will's, Pantyhose Hero. Oh man, love Pantyhose Hero. Wouldn't recommend it to anybody. No! Because, you know, Sammo Hung, us Hong Kong cinema fans, we've all seen Wheels on Meals, we've all seen Eastern Condors, but there's just... He, like, even more than Jackie Chan, he was just so insanely prolific, not just in the movies he directed, but you look at the movies he starred in. He was in, it looks like, five movies a year for about 20 years. I mean, the story goes, Sammo liked to play uh, the gambling, the horses, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. And it, it just makes me very excited. It makes me excited to know that there's just so much out there. How could he possibly have uh, 222 credits? And, like, some of them, I mean, uh, a year or two ago, I watched one called King
absolute hack job just a just a really stupid movie that nobody would respect but i know i kind of enjoyed it and (laughs) and you know samo's in there and there has a couple of good fights and i just get very excited when i look at that vast filmography and i'm like i can just stick my hand anywhere in here and pull something out and odds are i'm at least going to get two or three incredible scenes do you feel intimidated when you look at someone's filmography and there's like that much stuff you're like where do i go yes i do feel intimidated but i also know like i know what the big ones are i know that if it's sammo hung it's like okay eastern condors pedicab driver wheels on meals those are those are the hits and then after you've acclimatize yourself to the classics then you'll be comfortable just reaching out to anything could we be entering a world where like companies like 88 films and eureka just like you know they just franco samuel hung's filmography i want to live in that world because they've already done it with jackie chan i would love a tricked out beautiful 4k special edition blu-ray of the owl versus bombo or don't give a damn. I actually watched uh, a Sammo Hung film from a Hong Kong Blu-ray that I picked up from DDDhouse.com, uh, Dirty Tiger Crazy Frog, and it was not very good. A lot of those Sammo Hung movies, like they're comedies more than anything, and they're big, broad, dumb comedies that were made for maximum impact at the midnight show the day that it opened in Hong Kong. And, you know, if you can get into that spirit, if you can accept that that's what they are, there's still a lot of pleasure to be had in them. Samo as well is coming back. He's, you know, appearing in a new movie, clearly not doing any martial arts. He's an old man. Please don't make him do it anymore. But I'm glad that he's still kicking. Well, I saw that Samo has signed a deal to direct like a remake of the movie Painted Faces, which is Painted Faces was the movie about the cruel and sadistic kung fu master who trained him and Jackie Chan and a whole generation of Chinese stuntmen. He was in a movie called Painted Faces in the late 80s where he played that guy, but now he's directing another movie, a remake of that film. And I'm excited for that, even though I shouldn't be. I mean, it's going to be like a mainland Chinese thing, probably. So (laughs) will it be about like, ah, they were doing the right thing. And you know, all the pain that they felt, it paid off. The old story goes that Jackie Chan saw Painted Faces, which is a brutal movie, and he said not brutal enough we went through way worse yeah but you know that's what all those guys say they all say that yeah it was painful but uh you know they turned turned us into jackie chan or whatever well uh, yeah we wish we had turned to jackie chan or sam hung <laughs> no we're just a stuntman stepping on a nail and jumping out a window anyway my, my point is sam hung's filmography there's so much of it and and i'm i am intimidated but i'm also so excited that it seems like this inexhaustible resource it feels like God, like 200 movies. And yeah, a lot of them he's a supporting character or something. But there are a, a million movies from his golden age that he starred in that you just straight up, even guys like us, just straight up have not heard of. Well, I dive deep because for a while I wanted to do a Sammo Hung disc uh, for Gold Ninja Video many months ago. And I like watched so many, like maybe half of a movie <laughs> to be like, is this worth it? <laughs> Until like uh, I was up to my eyes in Sammo. But yeah, they're just like Will said, so much of it. I wish he had more treating ping style films like one for them then another like wild king swindler style like farting everywhere movie oh man those are the best kinds of movies 